The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today we're going to learn about the role of the sexual assault nurse examiner. This is a person that plays a significant role when a report of a sexual assault has been made. And just the person to tell us about this process is expert examiner and registered nurse, Carrie Caruso. Hi, Carrie. Good morning. Thanks for joining the show. So Carrie's going to discuss all kinds of evidence she looks for in an exam. So Carrie, you've been a, an RN, a registered nurse for 16 years. When did you begin consulting or conducting uh, the sexual assault exams? Actually, Francie, I've been a registered nurse for uh, this year. It'll be 40 years. Oh, 40 years? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and my introduction to uh, what was to become forensic nursing was about 1990, and that's where that comes in. I was working in a pediatrics emergency department, and someone came in. Um, reporting that they had been sexually assaulted. And all the other nurses ran the other way. <laughs> and I had never had any uh, experience like that before. So I became oh very goodness. interested in it. And, um, uh, you know, point by point, uh, did the examination and uh, later discussed it with my attending physician who told me that there was going to be a specialty someday. And I and said, there wasn't. What? And, and there wasn't even one at that time. Sexual assault examining is going to be a specialty, and lo and behold, she was right. Interesting. And where were you working at that time? I was working at a county hospital in Los Angeles, Olive View, and uh, that's Olive View, UCLA, and um, that uh, took in all kinds of patients around the county, and uh, we had uh, subsequently uh, some more sexual assault uh exams to be done, and uh, my doctor suggested that I even give some uh, lectures to the residents at their noon conferences, because we really weren't very savvy on that at that time. So th- you said this was 1990? No, uh, between 1990, uh, yes, I uh, actually found a course to take, which was one of the oh. first, and that is a, uh, the basic requirements are this 40-hour didactic course. And after that, I took that in 1993 up in Santa Cruz. And um, subsequent to that, you have a preceptorship, which is usually another 40, 45 hours. And those are interfacing with the other people that you deal with, law enforcement, crime lab, uh, advocacy agencies, uh, district attorney. 
What is pre- after uh, that's Carrie, completed, Carrie, I'm sorry, what does preceptorship mean? Preceptorship, after you've had your didactic course, then there's some uh, preceptorship with the other members of the team that you'll be interacting with. So you'll spend a certain number of hours uh, at the crime lab finding out what they do, a certain number of hours with law enforcement, maybe a ride-along. You spend some time with uh, uh, the advocacy agency to find out how they do. uh, Forensic nurses are objective, uh, scientific, and... In most cases, the forensic nurse, or I'm sorry, the, the registered nurse uh, is the advocate for their patient. Now, we are always an advocate for the patient's health and well-being, but in this particular case, we are not an advocate for their circumstances. So advocacy comes and they become the support person for the patient, and they also can offer counseling to them and certain resources. Um, so that would be one uh, essence that you take in finding out what it is that the other parties do. Obviously, law enforcement investigates the case. Uh, I personally happen to love to work with uh, investigators, and sometimes that works out either with the prosecution or defense um, interacting with their investigators. Um, and when the, and when this happened, Carrie, the, the, in 1990 when you did this uh, exam, was this the first one you'd ever done? Yes. And who, were, who was doing them before that? Well, uh, before forensic nurse examiners uh, became a specialty, anyone who came into an emergency department, whatever nurse happened to catch that case, was mm. the one that did it. Now, I did have a little bit uh, later on of insight on why all the nurses ran away is because it's a very time-consuming process for the yeah. patient. Uh, it's a probably about two to two and a half hours because the first part is talking, uh, you'll get a medical history. We're nurses first. So we'll get a medical history from that patient. We'll get a history of the event. And the second part of the examination is the physical examination where we do a head-to-toe assessment and then collection of uh, samples uh, for evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the nurse, it's about four to five hours because once the patient leaves, then we're going to fill out our report forms um, going to dry the evidence, which uh, if we have collected swabs, then we're going to put them in a drying box for an hour. And during that time, we'll go ahead and write our report. Um, the photographs that we take, some, uh, depending on what program you have, are collected and put on uh, that patient's disc. And uh, then after the evidence dries, it's labeled and packaged and sealed. Chain of custody is maintained, and it's turned over to law enforcement. Wow. So I, I can imagine there were lots of things that dropped through the cracks before they had this process. Yes, there are. And uh, even now there are some uh, uh, trainings going on for nurses because not every uh, hospital has a sexual assault nurse examiner. For example, I was just be- uh, became aware of uh, a bill in Texas that they wanted every nurse in the emergency department to have a two-hour session to learn how to do the exams. Well, Mm. that's kind of like walking backwards as far as I'm concerned, because Mm -hmm. this is very extensive uh, knowledge base. And um, the preceptor, besides the didactic 40 hours, the preceptorship, and then you need your clinical um, 
education to be able to go and do exams. How I would do it was that my nurses would be on the call schedule with me, and if I had an examination to do, I would call them in. Of course, we're on call 24-7, so a lot of the times you get your call at 2 o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and uh, come in to do the examination. Hmm. Wow. So, so you started down this road, and at that time you were at the LA County Hospital or the uh, UCLA Hospital, and then you left there and went someplace else. Correct? Well, I did. Um, actually, the Los Angeles is always plagued with layoffs, and I uh, was laid off from that hospital. But I continued to lecture and study, and I used to go to. Uh, sometimes they would have skills labs, and I would uh, ask to present and talk about forensic nursing before um, it was really. Uh, known, um, but my I decided that if I'm really going to go forward with this, I can't wait for something to come to me. So I ended up going to Big USC, and they invited <laughs> me to work in their program. So I worked there, and concurrently with two other programs, taking call on various days. In mm-hmm. the year 2000, San Gabriel Valley Medical Center asked me to start a brand new program, so I built that from the ground up and um, eventually left there in 2003 to establish Forensic Nurse Professionals. And uh, that was my own private practice, and um, I hate to say it, but people kind of said you couldn't do it, but we're <laughs> 10 years old now, and it's probably not a good idea to tell me I can't do something. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have gone through that experience, but uh, exactly. Um, exactly. in 2009, I my office was it was a 75 mile round trip for me, and if I had an exam in the night, of course that was two times. So when I turned 60, shouldn't have said that out loud. In 2009, <laughs> I moved my practice closer to home, and now I am a consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, since 2005, I've been teaching. Uh, forensic examination and other forensic uh, nursing courses for UC Riverside online. So uh, I keep pretty busy with my consulting practice and teaching. Well, and let's go back to when you developed the program at San Gabriel. Um, How do you even start out developing a program like that? Well, I was pretty lucky because I had worked in three prior programs, and I kind of took the best from all of them and put it together in my policies and procedures and protocols. Uh, There was a lot of changes going on at that time, uh, interaction with the crime lab and the types of things that they like to see collected and Mm -hmm. some techniques and uh, good literature that was coming up. So you take all of those uh, properties and put them together and make a real good program. I had some very, very fine nurses that worked with me and uh, we carried on that program for quite a long time, doing uh, examinations on uh, reported victims and suspects of sexual assault events. And does that program still exist at San Gabriel? It, they had a rocky start, a rocky, well, I shouldn't say start, they had a rocky finish. After I left, uh, they did have some difficulty getting that program going again, and eventually that hospital was sold, so again there were some changes made, but now they have... Uh, uh, I understand they have a, a nurse or two that works over there uh, from time to time, or, well, you know, uh, to continue the program. On-call kind of a situation? I'm really not sure how they've got yeah. it situated, but, yes, I ha- when I was there, I had my administrative time as well as training time as well as on-call time. 
Uh, I'm not sure how they have it arranged now, but I'm certain that that nurse is doing some administration stuff and also on call. Okay. And then you belong to some trade associations that you think are important. What are those? Well, my main organization is the IAFN, the International Association of Forensic Nursing. And I actually got in on the ground floor because at the time I was taking my class in uh, Santa Cruz in 1993, the IAFN was just getting started, and they had had their first uh, meeting at, uh, um, I think, Sacramento in 1992. And I learned about the organization through my class, and I became a charter member. And uh, they have annual conferences someplace in or out of the United States, and I've attended every conference since 1994. It's a great way to keep up to date. And in this profession, as you well know, it's very important to keep up with the latest literature and techniques and protocols that uh, are necessary. And that's the International Association of Forensic Nurses. Yes. Yeah, okay. And then... um, now, I know you train um, law enforcement, correct? I have actually, yes. I'm uh, pretty easy. You call and ask for a lecture, and I'll be happy to give it to you. So I have trained law enforcement. Um, uh, I have also given lectures for prosecutors and defense attorneys, citizens, community groups, uh, adolescents. Um, there's a lot to be learned. And I, you t- teach online? Uh, forensic courses for UC Riverside Extension? Yes, that was delightful. Um, UC Riverside asked me to develop some courses. Some of them had already been started but needed updating. So uh, they handed me that, and uh, we've been doing the... We were actually the first in the United States to have a uh, sexual assault examiner course online. And um, before us was Canada at Mount Royal, so that was uh, nice to have that here for us, and that class continues a few times a year, uh, sometimes two, sometimes three, depending. And I also developed an elder abuse course for them uh, that I wrote, and what else do I do? I have a human abuse course, Mm -hmm. and I'm in the middle of rewriting a course that I previously gave uh, for the pediatric examination. And then you got, you were honored as the recipient of the 2012 Instructor Excellence Award there. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Quite, a, quite an honor. <laughs> I, I think so, yes. Yeah. And you do, uh, you consult as an expert for both prosecution and defense, is that right? Yes. Um, when the nurse has done an examination, she is kind of built in the prosecution's case, she or he. So, for example, if I've done the examination on the uh, patient, then I'm kind of built into the prosecution's case, and I would be that expert in that uh, particular um, venue. Uh, Defense attorneys also need experts to mostly interpret what is going on in the examination. So Mm -hmm. I consider myself in criminal cases to be an educator for not only the attorney, but also uh, the court, should I be asked to testify? I don't testify in all the cases that I consult on, um, but it uh, uh, does need a little bit of interpretation, and there are some things, especially on the California form, that, that can uh, be a little uh, difficult to interpret. For sure. Okay, Carrie, this is a really good place to take a break. We need to take just a quick commercial break, and so we, we'll be right back with Carrie Caruso. 
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Carrie Caruso, who is a sexual assault nurse examiner. We were just saying, talking about that uh, Carrie does... Uh, expert work for both, or in consulting work for both the prosecution and the defense on criminal uh, criminal cases. And so you play a guitar. I play a guitar. And uh, the members of your band are all guitarists. You have a, um, what do you have? Yes, a I have a lead guitar player, a bass player. Uh, my other half is a pedal steel guitar player who also plays banjo and guitar and some mandolin and then our drummer. Um, I have some musicians that move in and out of that position, and hopefully when I'm really lucky, I have a lot of singers and we can do some harmonies. Well, that is just, uh, that's terrific. I, I hope to hear you sometime in person. Oh, good. I hope so, too. <laughs> so let's get back to our topic, a little sideline here. Um, so what, if, if you were to describe the basic role of a sane nurse, what would you, how would you describe that? Uh, the word I would use primarily would be objective. Uh, our role is actually not to believe or not to believe our patients. Our role is to be a nurse to them first and deliver uh, competent care, but also to be objective and um, remember that we're not on anyone's side. So as opposed to um, protecting ourselves from bias, uh, my role would be to document what that patient tells me mm-hmm. and uh, also the physical is- aspects of the examination in both written word and photography and uh, to deliver it as accurately as possible from what the patient has told me. Um, 
the patients come in at maybe different stages. For example, we have acute and non-acute examinations. Right now, the standard for an acute examination would be up to 120 hours after the event. Um, after okay. that, it would be considered a non-acute examination, but the only difference would be we would still collect a history from the patient and do a physical examination, but in a non-acute examination, we probably would not be collecting samples because we mm-hmm. think at that period of time that the biological evidence is past its time for collection. So the sooner the better, but uh, we still will uh, uh, see the patient even if it's after that 120 hours. Okay, so 120 hours is about five days? Is about that what you're five saying? days. Okay. All right. And so you must have to be a, a tremendously good listener. You do. And you can't really assist the patient or change her words or suggest things. So it's best to interview the patient not asking questions from a list because that can be suggestive. Just allow mm. the patient to tell the story in a narrative form and... Uh, document that as best you can using quotes as often as possible and uh, just collect that information. So when you first meet with this this person, this victim that's been sexually assaulted, how do you get them to start talking? Well, the first thing is to make sure that there's informed consent. And what that involves is making sure the patient understands what happens during the examination. They have the right to refuse any or all parts of the examination, and it's purely voluntary. So um, now with the Violence Against Women Act, the patient is not uh, mandated to report this to law enforcement, and there's another aspect to that that I won't go in here, but there are some issues that the patient needs to know about, and uh, usually the conversation will start to flow. We're nurses. We're not law enforcement. We're not mm-hmm. district attorneys. We're something that patients are used to. Uh, in other words, our examinations are not that different from our annual exams. Um, I know that there's a myth out there that these are horrible revictimization um, examinations that are difficult for the patient, but actually um, the exam is... is almost the same as our our, uh, annual examinations, except we have a different focus. We're collecting samples for the crime lab rather than the medical lab. And most of my patients throughout the years have been very comfortable in my environment that I've created for them, and they are uh, most willing to talk about their uh, experience. So um, uh, making them comfortable... You know, it's kind of interesting. I've had people comment. I heard laughter coming from the exam room, what's going on in there. But the fact is, is we do talk about things. We talk about pets and school and and music and their work and all the things that affect them um, in order to make this the first step maybe back to normalcy. Um, So there's a lot of conversation going on, even for the short time we're together, some bonding, and it's got to be accompanied by some trust. Now, let's go back to something you said, because you said that the person has a right not to report it to law enforcement? Yes. I need to know more about that. Why why is that? Well, in California, uh, 
In order to have an examination, we are mandated reporters to law enforcement. Yes. With the Violence Against Women Act, what happened there is that the patient is not mandated to cooperate with law enforcement. So what happens in that case is that the patient can have an examination done, and of course you have to have some understanding between and among the um, uh, interactive people, law enforcement, what have you. But they can have the examination done. Now, as a, as a general uh, information, that examination can be stored. And some programs might have, um, I don't know, 60, 90 days a year. And they'll store that information. And if the patient decides that they want to go forward, then they can um, go forward with that at any time. But for the forensic examiner, they're going to hold that evidence kit for a, a, number, a, a amount of time. Mm-hmm. Let's say a month before the time runs out, that patient might be contacted again and said, what do, would you like to do? Would you like to go forward with this case or would you like to not? Because in 30 days, that kit will be destroyed. And so there's only a limited number of uh, amount of space. And so if that patient decides to go forward, the kit is there and that can be forwarded to law enforcement or however that uh, state or program is handling that. Uh, but usually there will be a time limit to where that kit will be destroyed after a certain uh, amount of time. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, but even then, you're still a mandatory reporter, and so it still goes to law enforcement. Yeah, in California, we are mandated reporters. So how that would go was I would say... Uh, well, first of all, I have an independent practice, and how I'm activated is by law enforcement. So if they had a report of a sexual assault, they would be contacting me uh, rather than a patient just walking into my facility. But sometimes patients do walk into a hospital or what have you. So um, that patient would be told, I'm mandated by law to ro- report this to law enforcement, but you have the right to decide how you want to handle it. So the the... The uh, responsibility is still with the patient to decide what it is that they want to do. We only want to do what the patient is comfortable with. And you have to give, you're required to give them that admonishment? Uh, I always do. You know, even patients that uh, decide that they want the exam and they want the investigation to go forward, of course, from our point of view, we want the, we don't want to influence the patient, but we do want the investigation to go forward because if Mm -hmm. you wait, um, for a period of time, a month, two months, a year, uh, all the uh, fresh crime scene and all the things that law enforcement could be doing is not being done. So, uh, of course, you know, it would be best if the patient would do that, but that's their choice. And in other states, uh, many adults and adolescents are not mandated to report uh, sexual assault. Sometimes it's handled in a different way. For example, in another state, uh, sexual assault per se might not be mandated to report, but possible injuries uh, or use of a weapon or threatening with a weapon or something like that might be mandated to report. So um, it depends on the, the location. Okay. And then um, if, if we kind of take this exam apart and to... And, uh, with a list. You start with the interview. Yes. Correct. 
You start with um, the interview. I'll introduce and myself. I'll introduce myself by saying who I am and what I do, and that I am not a member of law enforcement, and uh, I am their nurse. And then we'll start with some medical history. There might be some allergies that the patient has, because at the end of the exam, I'm going to offer them prophylaxis for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and I'm also going to offer them emergency contraception. So I do want to know a little bit about their medical history and if they're taking any medications or if they have any uh, medical problems that I should know about. And then following that, I'll ask them a history of the event. And then after they tell me that, I will have them change clothes. We do want to put them in a gown, and depending on the circumstances, we might want to collect the clothes. Um, For me, mostly collecting undergarments would be more important, uh, depending on the circumstances. And then we'll do the assessment, the physical assessment, and I'll look at that patient head to toe. I'll never have them totally... Uh, disrobed in my presence. I'll usually slip one arm out of the gown and take a look at that side of the body and then the other side. And I'll document anything that I see along the way, if there's any uh, bruises or abrasions or anything. And, of course, you know, we have to be aware that everything I see in the examination may not be related to the event for which they have come to see me. So differential diagnosis is a very, very important part of the examination. Patients may have other conditions that uh, mimic injury or that are uh, not related to the event they're reporting. Um, If I see anything that uh, looks uh, like an injury or some sort of thing, I will photograph that. I'll probably use several photographs for each finding, uh, some far away so I can document the location and it's easy to see in the photographs. And then I'll get a closer shot, a little bit closer shot, and then I'll add a forensic ruler so that we can see the size of it. Genital injuries or genital findings, uh, may not be injuries. They may be medical conditions. I don't mm-hmm. use a, a ruler for that generally, but um, those uh, can be documented in uh, a fashion. We use the clock face. So if I'm looking at my patient, uh, 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whatever the face of the clock, and that stays. Mm-hmm. For example, if there's a finding at 5 o'clock, even if I have the patient in a different position, 5 o'clock is always 5 o'clock. And uh, for genital, there's internal and external. And um, the external is from the hymen forward, still within the labia, but that's called the vulva. And then behind the hymen is the actual vagina. So there's different terminology and anatomy that uh, isn't so common but used in our business on a regular basis. Right. Okay. Don't go away. Carrie and I are going to be right back to discuss this work of sexual assault nurse examiners. This is a good place to take a break. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Yes, Carrie and I were just talking about genital exams. And so what comes to mind, Carrie, is, you know, girls aren't the only ones that are, or girls and women aren't the only ones that are sexually assaulted. What about males? You're absolutely right, and I think that that's overlooked in a lot of um, a lot of information and guidelines. And we do often get uh, males. Um, their anatomy obviously is different, and uh, you know, along with that, they're not all um, gay. Uh, some men are assaulted and in a, a violent way because of one reason or another. I've also used to do uh, some cases for the um, people that were maybe in prison. Mm-hmm. And it's the same examination, the same respect, and uh, documentation of the findings as well. Uh, so we just want to make sure that uh, the psychology is a little different. Some men are very embarrassed to bring that forward. So we don't see as many men, but, uh, yes, we do want to bring it to the attention that men are assaulted as well. And um, so how does a rectal exam differ from the vaginal exam? Well, both women and men, when they come in, there's a complete inspection of their genitals and their anus. So uh, a woman, we would also inspect that because those are, are things that happen, and there are many things that can affect the... Uh, appearance of the genitalia and the anal area that are not related to sexual assault. So the nurse has to be aware of those findings as well. But, um, yes, there's many times that there are objects, fingers, penises put into anuses as well. So uh, the anus is the external structure, the rectum is the internal structure. And if there's an injury that I cannot see the end of or that there may be suspicion that there may be something internally, then we'll do a different uh, inspection and add anoscopy, which is a procedure for which we can go through the anus with an instrument and look into the rectum. It's actually a very simple procedure and uh, not that uncomfortable. 
so uh, we will get an inspection of the rectum as well um, on occasion. It's not necessary for every examination, but again, we'll be collecting some samples uh, from that area as well. For the women, um, we can look into the vagina by using a speculum, and that's another instrument that can allow us to go in and visualize the internal structure. Okay, and it, and is there a different process or altered process if you're dealing with either children or elders? Uh, different process, uh, knowledge of the skin and tissue and the estrogenization of elder people and children is going to come into play. Children is a little bit different because there's going to be some different procedures and their anatomy is different. So that's going to be something that comes with its own uh, knowledge base and the way to handle with chil- uh, handle children and their histories. And that's going to become important because very rarely, um, even with acute exams, children often do not have any findings. And sometimes the history is, is uh, in question because how, well, I've been asked so many times, how can a grown person have sexual contact with a small child and not leave any marks? Well, one of the reasons is because if someone is interested in children, they don't want to leave marks. They may want access to them again. But the other issue is that perhaps there's only a perception that there was actually penetration. And mm. perhaps some of the things that were described uh, are, can't be accurately described by children. doesn't mean nothing happened. It just means there's no evidence to support that history. So there's a number of things that come into play besides physical findings. You know, Francie, some people believe that if there was sexual contact or a sexual assault, that there would be some findings that would indicate that. But there really aren't, especially for adolescents and adults. Uh, We can't tell if something is consensual or non-consensual. In other words, there are some findings as a general rule that we would never know if there was any penetration or if it was consensual or non-consensual. Of course, there are those rare cases where there's tremendous injury and one would not um, uh, one would have a tendency to think it might not be but that's not our role I can't tell you uh, consent or non-consent okay so this will show my ignorance Carrie (laughs) so why wouldn't you be able to tell if it was non-consensual wouldn't there be injuries obviously sex is sex and uh, for children we're not talking about children right now the children there is no consent issue but right. people that have sex, there can be injury, and those injuries usually involve okay. uh, small tears or some abrasions, right. and those occur as a natural byproduct of sex because there's two physical people working, if you will, against each other in this act. Mm-hmm. So there can be the same findings in consent that there are in non-consent, and we mm-hmm. can't tell the difference. So... Uh, that's one of those myths, I think, that they believe that there would be injury if there was a sexual assault. Another aspect to that is that sometimes people have bruises or injuries on their body, um, but I separate injury on bodies from injury on genitals or anus because there is a possibility that two people can have consensual sex and then later have some kind of knockdown, drag-out fight, 
Or mm-hmm. there could be alcohol on board and people can fall or run into things. So it's best to keep it clear and evaluate body injuries separately from genital and anal injuries. Very interesting. Um, <laughs> you must have had some unusual experiences, though. <laughs> Do you have any that you could talk about? Well, if we have another couple hours, um, <laughs> for sure, I do have one that was very interesting, and um, this was a case of a woman who uh, went to a, a building, uh, I guess an office building, with uh, three men, and uh, some untoward things happened. Now there was alcohol on board, but what? happened at the end, of course, you know, I'm doing the examination on the three suspects and on the reporting victim. Uh When all was said and done, the DNA came back. And the DNA from the woman and suspect number one was clear on the DNA. On the second set, the DNA from number one and the woman was present on number two's DNA report. And the third suspect had the DNA of the woman, number one and number two, and himself. So not only did we know that all three of the DNA was present there, actually all four, (laughs) because obviously the woman's was too, but all all of their DNA was present, and we were also able to tell in which order they went because of the DNA that was on each of their reports. Okay, so can you run that through through again? Because how did how did that work? Did I lose? Yes, I was yeah. trying to. You know, sometimes it just doesn't come out right. All right, so DNA report comes back, and the DNA report for number one had his DNA and her DNA. Okay. The report for the second suspect had suspect number one and his own DNA along with the female's DNA, and the third report had the gentleman's DNA, and number one and number two, and the female's DNA. So they were all having sex with with each other? They all had, well, they all had sex with her. Okay, they all had sex with her, but not necessarily with with the guys with each other. Yes, so number one had her DNA. Number two had number one and number two and her DNA. Okay. And number okay. three had number one, number two, number three, and her DNA. Okay. All right. So was this a gang rape? Uh, yes, that's what it would be entitled, I suppose. Okay. Okay. So there, right. are, there are times where nobody's DNA shows up except for the patient's herself. Uh, one of the things, I guess, that that shows us is that the uh, law enforcement, if they can manage to uh, get that suspect, uh, he can have a um, forensic exam as well. And sometimes that is, uh, uh, well, good for either side. It could uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, cause uh, exoneration and it sometimes can add him in. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and women can also be suspects in these cases as well. I think we often think of it as a female victim and a male suspect, mm-hmm. but uh, those can all be switched around quite easily. Do you have a situation where you had a female that was a suspect? Yes, yes, I've had several. Some of them are um, interesting kinds of cases. Sometimes it's in concert, and, um, you know, you just, you, you just never know what to expect. There can, I, I did have, actually, an interesting case where um, 
it was uh, an adult female with a teenage girl that uh, had some interaction in a school situation. And one of the findings was um, actually a bruise on the hymen, and people were uh, thinking, well, what could have caused that? But actually it was oral contact that causes, caused that bruise. Hmm. Wow. Um, and have you had a lot of situations with, with children, child victims? Child victims are um, very prolific. We actually have a different um, group of people. Some people specialize in adults, adolescents, and some people specialize in children. And uh, there is a different set of rules, a different set of uh, elements that may come with the child exams. Uh, often they, uh, I personally don't believe in delayed reporting. I believe people report when they report. So um, sometimes children don't report any, anything for uh, sometimes long, long time, sometimes years. And obviously we're not going to find any evidence, but there's other elements that are going to go into that case. Uh, often there might be a whole family of children that are brought in for examinations. And um, sometimes uh, their perception of things that occur... Uh, you know, it's very, very dangerous. One of the things that I keep saying, objective, 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 but, uh, you know, all these patients should be treated with dignity and respect, but it's really not a wise thing for the forensic nurse to actually buy into the story because uh, there may be elements that we're not aware of. As the nurse examiner, we only have that side of the story. As a defense consultant, I get a lot of sides of the stories. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes that gives a better picture of what happened or what may not have happened. Again, I can't invade the providence of the jury and tell you exactly what happened, but I can at least give an evaluation of what I see as far as physical findings or lack of physical findings. And again, mm-hmm. lack of physical findings doesn't necessarily mean that nothing happened. It Correct. just means that there's no physical findings to uh, support that allegation. So there are other elements that are going to come into play. And I don't know, maybe you can't answer this question, but how many cases do you think where there, for example, wasn't a physical uh, finding, you didn't see evidence of a sexual assault, that the allegation was uh, unfounded? Uh, Many, many. Um, There are different groups that come up with different statistics, and that's why I'm not a... uh, confirmed believer in all statistics, but uh, I think at some point in time, uh, I won't name them, but one group says only 2% are false or unfounded reports. Um, One group says 50 to 60%. I did an informal study uh, for two years running on on my program, and I found that there's about 25 to 30% of patients that come in uh, that their story may be... um, uh, unfounded or false. I've had some patients just tell me right off, okay, I, this didn't happen. So, really? Thankfully, really? I'm not the investigator. Law enforcement is the investigator, and they can sometimes get input um, uh, collaboratively, but it's their job to investigate, my job to document and take good care of my patient. So uh, whatever they tell me, however that goes, they're still my patient, and um, we have to, to treat them with respect and dignity. So if somebody came in, you were doing an exam, and they, they admitted that 
it they made a false allegation. Would you write that down in your paperwork? I would, yes, I would document what the patient tells me. But again, that patient, you know, being a nurse first means that there's still some care that this patient needs. Um, right. And so we would refer them on for whatever services that they may need. Uh, maybe there's a reason for that uh, false report. Sometimes there's no good reason for that false report. And, of course, the best thing that can happen is that justice is done. But as we know, we have the Innocence Project. We have all kinds of things that are proving that some of these things that have uh, been alleged have not happened. So it's very important to be very careful and uh, not decide that you're going to be on somebody's side and uh, make Mm -hmm. sure that I think uh, one of the famous quotes is to better to have a uh, guilty man go free than an innocent man go to prison, and I kind of subscribe to that as well. Mm-hmm. And and then there are um, victim advocates that um, are often sent to the hospital to assist the victim. Is that right? In California, it's a law that advocacy be called by law enforcement. And uh, okay. we would do that anyway, Um the patient does not have to have the advocate in with them. They're crisis advocates, and uh, they're trained for the accompaniment and support of the patient. They can also deal a little bit with the families. And uh, in our region here, they offer counseling sessions to the patients, and uh, it's a very good collaboration when you have a good group to work with, and those uh, patients help see it through through a trial, they might go to uh, the district attorney's office with the patient and uh, go through those interviews. Uh, obviously, it's good, especially for children, to keep interviews to a minimum, but it should be known that there are going to be many interviews and many things that are going to happen down the line, especially if this case goes to trial. We have kind of been informed that very few of our cases go to trial, um, uh, it's probably an old statistic now, but probably only 15% of the cases that we do the exams on will ever get to trial for one reason or another. And that may have to do with the investigation or some other causes. Okay. We're going to take another break, Carrie. More to come with Carrie Caruso and the role of the sexual assault nurse examiner. Stay tuned. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. 
NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi, Carrie. Thanks. Hi. Thank you again for being with with us today on this show and I'm, I'm really curious I'll bet there are people listening to the show that uh, may be interested in becoming a sexual assault examiner type nurse uh, what would what kind of advice would you give them I get those calls all the time at least once a week somebody calls and that's a very good question we uh, used to say five years as a registered nurse, but now I think uh, the standard is at least two years. You need a really good basic foundation to be able to do this because you work independently. And uh, somebody might be having a health problem that uh, we're unaware of at the time, so an inexperienced nurse might not be able to take care of that. But a uh, good foundation is important of at least two years. Then there's the uh, forensic course. Uh, that's the 40-hour didactic or classroom course. Many are face-to-face classroom. Uh, my course is online. And then after that, they'll be doing the preceptorship that we discussed earlier. And after they complete the preceptorship, then they will most likely shadow a nurse, an experienced examiner, and uh, be able to pick up a lot of techniques. Of course, even at that time, uh, you're not going to see everything but it does give you a good foundation to get started. Um, most of the programs now uh, require that the nurse go ahead and take that sexual assault course prior uh, to joining the program, but it's always a good idea, and I always tell my students, to try and hook up with a sexual assault program prior to the course so then you'll have somebody to go to uh, to do your preceptorship mm-hmm. and your internship. Uh, once you've mastered the examination, then you can solo. So in my programs, I would have my nurses come in and uh, I would do the exam and they would observe. And then I would gradually inject them into the examination, maybe beginning by helping me uh, label and package the evidence and we could talk about the things that we collected. Um, It's very important to customize your exam for each scenario rather than just doing a robotic type of protocol. So customizing Mm -hmm. the examination for the patient and the patient's history, and then uh, after they have uh, been able to uh, assist with the examination, then I'll start letting them do more and more and more. And once they've had the examination under their belt and they can do a good job, I want them to develop their own style, and then we'll put them on the schedule to solo. And so if somebody's evaluating themselves, what kind of qualities do they need to go into this field? Well, again, they have to 
sometimes there's some motives that people think that they want to be a forensic sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, one of my uh, valued colleagues uh, told me one time that some people like to join this um, group to be uh, healed themselves or they've gone through some issues themselves. Sometimes they make very, very good nurse examiners and sometimes uh, they don't because they're having some internal issues. But for the most part, nurses have to develop that objectivity, their professional boundaries, uh, to know uh, exactly what it is that their interaction is meaningful to that patient and to themselves without crossing that line um, by being a uh, supporter. It really would behoove the nurse to uh, develop that objectivity and have no judgment, and that makes a very, very good witness in court when that person doesn't have an agenda. You know, it's really a, a, a fine boundary between trying to be uh, objective at the same time being warm and friendly <laughs> and keeping your distance. That's a, that's a very hard, very hard skill to develop. You're right. You're absolutely right. And it is a little bit foreign for the nurse who is, uh, has always been expected to be the support person and the advocate for that patient. And uh, I think along everyone's career, uh, they have little lights that go off along the way uh, where they learn things. And mm-hmm. I can actually remember the exact moment uh, sitting in court where it occurred to me what it really does mean to be objective. Uh, some of the way nurses come off is that they are the support person for that patient and they want to champion that cause. And right. if you, it, it shows, actually, um, yeah. When, yeah. That, when that happens. So it really is important to develop that, and as you say, it's not that easy. Uh, some people don't get it, and sometimes it takes a long time to get it, but if you do keep those words in your head about professional boundaries and the objectivity and what your role actually is, um, again, nurses first. Um, yeah, right. it, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Some people think that we're just evidence collectors, yeah. and some yeah. people think that we uh, have too much compassion and we are uh, protecting our patients and you know it, it is it's a very fine line you're absolutely correct well carrie we're at the end of our hour and it's it's been just, just delightful talking to you today and learning all about this i've learned things i didn't know and i'm sure our listeners did too um, if you're interested in being on an advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer of the show, Sandra Rogers, at Sandra.Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. And tune in next week again as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Thanks, Carrie. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 